This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode 248 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm your host, Dan Gunther, and the other host is also here, Bruce. How's it going today? I'm doing well. My name is not Dan Gunther, but I am also a host. (laughs) yes indeed bruce gibson the other voice of literary treks of course here as he is every week every well every three weeks i do it every week for three weeks but we always take a week off that's true because you know you have to recover your eyes you know from all the straining of reading you you have to give them time to rest (laughs) yeah yeah we used to do one every week but that's just a bit too much so you know it's nice to have that that week off we're coming back from a week off now to do this episode and it's really just always a nice little break to be able to do that yes and uh i just put my reading glasses on just for fun even though i'm not reading anything I, i say we go back to every week we could do that we could do that maybe every fourth episode we'll just chat about stuff though <laughs> I don't want to read more. <laughs> Although I have actually been reading more than what we've been doing on the show. So that, you know, that's actually what happens though. But see, this is a good thing because <laughs> what we do is we catch up on other reading that we don't have time to do because we do the show. So, I mean, and half the time we're reading other Star Trek books. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And not just books, but Star Trek comics as well. Although we do cover all of those on the show. And speaking of which, we got some news about a new comic coming next year, Uh, another Star Trek Discovery one-shot issue, which is kind of exciting. This one is entitled Captain Saru. So it's a new IDW comic title, and it's coming in February of 2019. Uh, This comic is written by Mike Johnson and Kirsten Beyer with art by Angel Hernandez and the cover by Paul Shipper. And we do have that cover art. We don't have a synopsis yet, but man, I have to say this cover is absolutely gorgeous. This is stunning. Yeah, it's got many of the crew members there with Discovery behind. And uh, I mean, it's funny that Burnham is up front and, and Saru is right behind her when this is a Saru comic. 
So that's pretty interesting. But I do love the colors, the blues, the purples. There's like, you know, whatever, like a nebula or something in the background. Yeah, it's very stunning for sure. Mm -hmm. And a gorgeous shot of discovery in behind them as well there, which is really cool. I love that ship. You know, I was skeptical when that first uh, test footage came out from Comic-Con a couple of years ago, but I love the design of it now. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and I love how the hull rotates when they do the spore drive. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's that. Um, yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like that, obviously. Uh, I, I, I don't mind it. It's, it's weird. I get my head around it. It's all good, but I love the design. Don't at me. <laughs> you know, you know, the Star Trek Enterprise uh, pizza cutters, you've seen yes. those. Yeah. This would make a perfect pizza cutter because the hull actually does rotate. Totally. And the handle is nice and long. That would work really well. Those huge long warp nacelles. <laughs> I want a USS Discovery pizza cutter to go with my Enterprise pizza cutter now. Uh, thinkgeek.com, make it happen. We want to see this. <laughs> make it so. Definitely. Well, other than that, not a lot of news this week. Um, that's kind of all we have for news. In our feature today, we're talking about the third book of the DS9 Millennium series, and that's entitled Inferno. Uh, so what do you say we brave the flames and hop on over to check that book out? I will get into my bubble and go through the wormhole and get displaced in time and do the book. So as I mentioned, we're talking about Deep Space Nine Millennium Book 3 of 3, Inferno by Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens. Not quite as long a title as we've gotten for the first two books, but still, you know, a lot in there. But yeah, this is concluding that series, finally. And I don't say finally because I've not enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed this series. But man, these are big books, and there is a lot going on in them, so... Let's uh, start out, I guess, by uh, talking a bit about the series as a whole, because, Bruce, this is one you've read before and a personal favorite of yours, right? It is. So I read these books around the time that they came out in uh, like 1999-2000 time frame, and I remember enjoying them at that time, and uh, I've enjoyed them again this time. But it's been a Quite an interesting little journey with these books. Um, I really do enjoy them, but I'll save my opinion about this last one towards the end. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Well, as this uh, book starts out, in book two, we had the whole alternate future thing. They were stuck 25 years in the future, and the end of the universe was coming, and the Defiant and the Boreth ended up both kind of near Bajor with the two wormholes coming together and converging, which would signal the end of the universe. And both ships, through various machinations, find themselves in the worm in the red wormhole, I believe, yes. <laughs> as this book starts here. But we don't really see that when we start the book. Instead, we're following a number of different characters, and they're in these strange situations and we're not really sure how they got there and as it unfolds we kind of learn that each of the characters are in what we'll term their own personal hell and we come to find out that this is a situation that's been engineered by the pa wraiths so what did you think about this part and kind of each person's personal hell there's some really interesting stuff in here that i kind of enjoyed 
Well, as you mentioned, they're they're going through the whole wormhole experience, and the the way the last book ended, and then going to this, we know that they're going through this this time portal of some sort or whatever, and then we see them in these unique situations and you start to wonder, are these dreams or what is this? And it reminded me of Star Trek four, the voyage home when they would slingshot and there was like this weird thing going on. And it's like, you hear people talking and you should see like the wheat field and the images and stuff. Like, it's like this weird kind of, there'd be whales here. (laughs) Admiral, I should never have left. (laughs) <laughs> i watched like, star trek 4 so many times oh my god anyway, i sorry. can't even imagine oh my gosh <laughs> really but you know it, it's kind of trippy when they when they make that that leap and i thought this is kind of the same thing like oh maybe they're going through time and they're in this different phase and it's kind of trippy and stuff but then uh when we see ducat coming and rescuing them from personal hells there's something more going on here, but each personal hell was quite interesting. Uh, one of my favorites was with Miles O'Brien when he was in a Dyson sphere. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you like that one? Yeah. The, the visual of it and just the, the physics of it seemed really interesting. Uh, just as a total aside, I was like, I, I wish we got some sense of that from the episode that there was a Dyson sphere in, but like, they seem all fairly casual about having found a Dyson sphere, but the engineering is crazy. And just the fact that that would form the basis of O'Brien, an engineer, that would be his personal hell. I found that sort of amusing somehow. <laughs> well, it's a personal hell that he is just standing in. He's not moving and he's there for hundreds or thousands of years or whatever. He's just watching time go by and he's not even doing anything. He's just there. He's just looking at the Dyson sphere. It's kind of weird, but yeah, the visual of that I could really gather. So I like that one. Um, I would say the quark one was a little quirky. <laughs> See there? Oh yeah. It was a little funny, but you know, it's like, he's going to, you know, his version of heaven, the divine realm, the great material river or whatever. And he goes up to the gates and actually his doesn't seem like hell until the divine Nagus shows up and it's Rom. <laughs> Which like, is no. uh, some imagery that shows up a lot in Deep Space Nine, which is weird. You remember the episode Body Parts? He had a dream that he had died and gone to the Divine Treasury and Rom's the Nagus there as well. And then at the end of the series, spoilers if you haven't watched Deep Space Nine, Rom actually becomes the Nagus. So, you know, yeah. I guess life is Quark's personal hell at this point. <laughs> yep, Exactly. The other thing I liked was the very first one was Cisco. That was a little odd because he's like fighting with the fire beast, but at the same time he sees himself as Benny Russell and he's writing mm-hmm. this story or something and then he's living the story. And I love how we're bringing in Benny Russell into this yeah. personal hell for him. And it was like this really pulp science fiction story with this Ven- Venus monster kind of thing. Like they're actually on the planet Venus and it's this huge bug-eyed monster or something like that. And it feels very 1950s pulp science fiction. That was really cool. I actually really liked Jake's personal hell as well, where he's uh, writing. And he keeps writing faster and faster and faster. But above him on the page, the words are disappearing. And it's going to catch up. And he can't get ahead of it. And 
it's it's very small scale compared to a lot of the other ones but like i got a little anxious reading that because that i i I get that like it was very i can see how that would be someone's personal hell yeah especially if they're a writer for sure yeah you know the other one i just want to mention because we'll talk about her later is arla ray Mm -hmm. uh, the bajoran officer and she's stuck in in mud and there's cardassians fighting in the war and she's basically stuck there and she's involved in the war and she feels the cardassians are going to attack her and then kayapaka shows up and there's a point where Arla starts to starts to feel as if she now is starting to believe in the prophets and start to fall into this religion because after seeing this war, she's finding peace in the religion, uh, in this Bajoran uh, religion that she hasn't believed in before. She didn't grow up on Bajor, even though she's Bajoran. And so this leads to a nice little arc later on in the book. So I like that personal hell story once we get further in the book it made a lot more sense definitely well one thing i want to talk about with regards to this part is you know people talk about how picard lived an entire lifetime in the episode uh the inner light and then the next week he seems totally fine and that kind of thing in this case do you think they really felt like they had spent thousands of years in these hells because I have to say they recovered pretty quickly. If that's the case, I, I got the impression from the book that they actually experienced thousands of years like this, but then I don't know that that's the case because they, like I said, they really seem to just kind of get over it pretty fast. I, I I feel like they'd be destroyed personally. (laughs) Yeah. You would think that, but if you, I don't obviously think that they spent a thousand years or all this eternity that it really was a quick flash like the inner light where Picard wasn't really out of it for that long, but it felt like forever. But I think that's probably a brief feeling. You know, there's times I'll have a dream Mm. and when I wake up, I still feel like, you know, that sensation of what that dream was or about whether it was good or bad. But then a lot of times reality hits and I don't feel that anymore, you know? Okay. It's almost as if the dream just starts to kind of fade away. I remember details of it, but the feelings aren't as strong as it was in the dream. So I just wonder if there was a feeling of, oh, I've been here for a thousand years, but that quickly starts to fade away. They have the memories of feeling like it was a thousand, but that's not really in them anymore. Yeah. That that makes a lot more sense because I I felt like if it really were, I mean, obviously, like you said, they're not actually spending that amount of time in there, but even I think if it actually, they experienced that much time in there, you know, subjectively, it wouldn't make sense. They'd be so okay afterwards. So yeah, I think that maybe it it just seemed like it or felt like it at the time, but then they're able to shake it off. That makes a lot more sense. I like that. Yeah, because if they really came, if they really were there for a thousand years, once they come out of it, you're right. I mean, they... They would probably need a few years to even recover, to even know what to do, maybe even to speak, because I think that was even one of the issues with Miles O'Brien in his personal hell when Ducat showed showed up. Miles at first couldn't speak because it'd been a thousand years without talking to anybody. And then when he wanted to communicate with Ducat, it was hard to even create a voice because he hadn't done it for so long. Right. <laughs> so yeah, speaking of Ducat. 
basically, like we said, the two crews are split up amongst the Boreth and the Defiant. And the crew members who are on the Boreth get pulled out of this hell by Dukat. And basically, he's kind of using their trauma against them. He pulls them out and says, you know, will you serve me or I'll put you back in there or something like that. So he's kind of got, you know, O'Brien, Quark, Rom, Garrick, I believe, uh, and Odo on his side for for the time being anyway. And then over on the Defiant, uh, we have it's Cisco, Dax, Worf, Jake, Arlerese, and Kira. Yeah. And they're pulled out, if I'm not mistaken, by Dax. She kind of figures it out and is able to pull them out, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, because or... I remember her pulling Worf out, for sure. Right. Yeah, because they're fighting against each other and Worf keeps killing her and hundreds of enemies around him before she's able to kind of like get get to him and make him realize what's going on and who she is and what they're trying to do. So that was really interesting. I wasn't sure exactly what was going on there. This whole beginning of the book is very confusing and you're kind of placed in the minds of these characters and you're just as confused as they are until they start getting out of these hells and back to what serves as reality at this point because they're trapped inside the wormhole in a timeless void where the universe doesn't exist anymore but it's closer to reality than these hells are anyway well if you think that was confusing i think the whole book gets to be confusing (laughs) yeah and this is i've i've i always really enjoy literary treks and talking about the books but i have to admit i've been dreading this a little bit all week sitting down and talking about this book because there's so much crazy stuff going on in this book and you know spoiler for the end of the episode i did really enjoy it don't worry about that i did really like it but it is really confusing some sometimes in here and i got a little lost a few times I definitely got lost several times. I had to go back and reread some things just to kind of put my head together. And, you know, yeah, I mean, coming, I, I wasn't necessarily dreading coming on the show, but there was a part of me that's like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I can explain this. I don't know if I fully understand all this. And that's why I went back and reread some things. So I feel a little bit better about it. But yeah, when you're coming on the microphone and talking to everybody about a book that you're still trying to put together in your head, you're like, I'm going to sound really stupid because I don't know exactly why something happened. And like, even before the show, Dan and I were like, well, what, what happened again? And how did, and we're putting the pieces together to, you know, we're both (laughs) trying to figure things out. So it, it does get confusing, but at the same time, it's such an enjoyable adventure. So Mm -hmm. don't let that scare you. That gets confusing. I would say from my standpoint, and I know I'm getting a little like towards more of the end of my opinion, uh, which we would do in the final thoughts, but because I was kind of in a rush to read through the book so we can be prepared for the show. I would say, if you're going to this book, take your time mm-hmm. and just really read through it. And then maybe even go back and reread a little of what you just read. Yeah. I, it sounds a little strange, but I feel like, it's a junior high book report that I have to give in front of the class and I'm not completely prepared for it. <laughs> like I did read the book, 
but I didn't quite pull out the right themes and metaphors and all the stuff that the teacher is going to be marking me on, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to be the teacher. I'm going to be grading you on this one. Oh, great. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> At least I know the teacher and we're friends. So yes. <laughs> well, the funny thing is you're the teacher between the two of us. <laughs> That may be why I'm taking this so personally. <laughs> so, yeah, basically the beginning with the hells, that's all very confusing, but it doesn't get any less confusing because everyone is kind of pulled out of their hells and they must find a way to get back to the station, which surprisingly enough appears to be in the wormhole with them aboard the Defiant and the Boreth. They can see the station. It's a good distance away from them. Uh, but the people on the Boreth see the station as it was when the red wormhole uh, destroyed it. And the people on the Defiant see the station as it was around the Cardassian day of withdrawal six years earlier when the Cardassians first left Deep Space Nine before uh, the Federation came in in the pilot episode. So... There's a bunch of weird physics stuff going on here. They send uh, probes or shuttles to the station on a tractor beam to see like if they can get closer to the station. The shuttles register that they've got not gotten any closer to the station, but they can beam things to and from the shuttle. And that means they can beam things to and from the station. So they start beaming people onto the station. And <laughs> this is where things get really confusing because they're not beaming to the station at a set point in time. In both time periods, the time that they're arriving at on the station, it keeps kind of swinging like a pendulum forward in time, back in time, forward in time, back in time around the day of withdrawal for the one station and around the destruction of the station by the other. So it'll be like six days before that, six days behind that, three days ahead of that. You know, it'll just keep kind of swinging back and forth. So this, of course, leads to a whole bunch of weird temporal shenanigans and paradoxes and that sort of thing as they figure out what they have to do to change history so that they don't it doesn't turn out like it does in the alternate future in book two, but at the same time, not changing their past history so that they're not destroyed with the rest of the universe. And oh, my God, I've gone cross eyed. <laughs> I'm impressed. You did a very good job explaining that, I, even though people are probably like, wait, what did he just say? Well, that's what it's like reading the book. <laughs> I don't even know what I just said, but I think I got that right. And I damned if I could ever do it again, <laughs> but I got it right the one time. Well, that's, that's what's so confusing in a way that, and I, that's why I say that when you read the book, you probably need to just take a little bit of time, <laughs> no pun intended, huh. but because you've got different members of the crew beaming to the station and some are beaming at one period of time and others are beaming at another period of time. And then there's these equalization waves that propel people forward in time a little and then back again. And it's like Doc Brown going to Marty and saying, oh, my gosh, Marty, we just keep messing up the timeline and we got to keep going back and going forward. And yeah, it's just like and not that they're like correcting the timeline and that's what, and they're not 
propelling themselves forward and back. It's just, that's what's happening in this environment. So when you have Odo, you know, at the time before the orbs are all brought together, causing the wormhole and he's on the station. And then you go to a scene of Cisco and he's in the same location on the station, but it's six years earlier. And then Kira shows up. And then you sometimes wonder, is that the Kira of the future that beamed over is that the cure of the past that has just run into Cisco. And if anything, and this is one scene that I really loved, there's two Garricks because yes. the Garrick of the future goes to visit the Garrick of the past. And the Garrick of the future has to prove to the Garrick of the past that he really is Garrick and not like a shapeshifter or something. And so just the play, just, just take a moment and think of Garrick talking to himself you know what this probably plays out to be like. <laughs> that was amazing. I'm glad that came up because that whole bit was really clever. So the other thing is, and this kind of ties in with this, is there's all these little mysteries that have been dropped in the past couple books, mostly the first book, about strange things centering around the day of the the Cardassian withdrawal. And one of them is the fact that Garrick, Quark, and Odo all seem to have missing memories from that day. And we're not quite into spoilers yet, but we learn why that is in this book. And it all fits together oddly well. <laughs> like, I do have to say that's one thing that by the time I got to the end of this book, I was like, everything makes way more sense than I ever thought it could. Like, I... There was so much weirdness going on that I was like, there's no way that this will all be cohesive, but this book manages to do it, which maybe more or less, there's a few things that are still a little hinky that we'll get to. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with how this all holds together. Yeah, it's, it all makes sense, but I'm at the same time going, I think, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bit much. It really is. So we've kind of danced around the issue a little bit and we've we've talked a bit about what goes on in the page of the pages of this book. But I think at this point we should probably say we're going to get into spoilers now. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to finish off this trilogy and read this final book, uh, I would suggest going and doing that. There's a lot going on. And our conversation, even if you put aside the spoiler aspect of it, is probably not going to make any sense whatsoever if you have not read this book. So here's a fair warning to you. Uh, we're getting into spoilers and please have read this book because uh, we're barely holding the thread of the conversation and we've read it. So if you haven't read it, you'll be completely lost. I have the book in front of me just to kind of look things up if I need to. Oh, you're ahead of me at the moment. I do not have it in front of me. I just have my notes. So <laughs> God help us all. <laughs> so we've got this time travel situation. These characters are kind of trying to figure out what to do. The one thing that I appreciated was this aspect of time travel where it turns out, and I'd kind of predicted this from the beginning, that their place in the timeline and what they're doing on these various days as they swing back and forth through time, they're a part of history already. They're kind of, they kind of end up being a part of what was supposed to have happened from the beginning. And that's getting a little philosophical. Who knows what was supposed to have happened, but they're a part of the history as it has already unfolded. 
they just don't quite realize that they keep thinking that they have to change time and you know for example the red orb of jalbador that is hidden inside the big mural in quarks you know they say oh well we'll take it away from there and then we never find it and then that'll change everything and they go there and it's not there it's gone already so well where is it you know but that's all part of history when it was put there and when it was taken out and I won't get into the specifics because I couldn't even tell you where that orb goes and when at various points in this book, but they're all just a part of what was supposed to happen. And there's little hints about this that I really liked in the first book. For example, Quark is being harassed by the Cardassian soldiers and he sees Garrick on the upper walkway wearing some sort of weird uniform that he just catches a glimpse of. And he's like, Oh, that's weird. And then like, 10 seconds later, he sees Garrick down on the, the main promenade level where he is wearing his regular clothes. And, you know, the book kind of blows past that in the first book. And you're like, that's weird. That's never explained. But in this one, that's all that all dovetails nicely into what happens in this book. The Garrick up on the upper walkway is from the future. Uh, he's wearing like the Bajoran ascendancy uniform or something like that. And the Garrick on the bottom is the one from this time. And I, I love stuff like that. It's like, it's like back to the future too, when Marty watches his dad punch out Biff and has to attack the guys while they're, while he's also playing Johnny B. Good on the stage. Like there's just all these different things going on that amazingly, like I said, hold up really well. It does. It, and I also feel that because there's so many of those little connections and such like that, that you want to go back and reread the books, you know, that things have become more clear and things will connect better. But I mean, these are some big books to actually go through and read all over again right after you've read them the first time. But I almost feel like it's worth it. But at the same time, as I'm reading this, I kept thinking, how did these authors keep this all straight themselves? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine how they wrote this book. I mean, major kudos to Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, because it's just like, I just don't know how they kept it all together. I don't even know how they came up with the idea. Like they had to sit there and plan this out for over a year. I, I mean, yeah. I just can't imagine. I do have to ask, did you read the acknowledgments of this book? I didn't because I was still confused. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of make reference to uh, how confusing the plot is and uh, give huge thanks to their editor for <laughs> kind of having faith in them that it would all shake out and that sort of thing. So I think I got to say kudos to their editor as well, who probably had a huge part in making this all work together as well. I, I got to imagine, and we've talked about this before with other authors that they had to have like had whiteboards and bulletin boards and just like trying to figure out where everything happens in this story and how it all fits together. And it really is, like you said, a very impressive undertaking for sure. Yeah. I'm looking at the acknowledgements now. Maybe I did read this, but the editor was Margaret Clark, who still edits uh, the Star Trek books today, but they do mention this is never to be tried again. <laughs> <laughs> i don't blame them <laughs> but yeah it's crazy and then also 
as you're talking about, you know, Quark seeing Dukat, it also reminded me of that orb missing from Quark's bar because Cisco and Kira are like, yeah, let's go take the, the orb away from the bar. So in the future, when we go to get it, it's not there. And of course they show up and well, now it, it's, it's not there and it should be there because unless the timeline has changed and how could the timeline change and is everything going to work out and where is the orb and how, did it go back or whatever? But at the same time, they were out of phase. So even as some of our crew members are on the station in the past, their past selves and others can't see them. Now they can actually operate uh, technical you know, machines and things They can touch things. They can walk around, they can work computers and they can push buttons, but they can't be seen by other people. Now, I mean, you could say that's a story cop out, you know, well, they can't be seen. Oh, but then I need them to do something. Well, they can, they can touch a computer and use it. They just can't be seen. They pass through people and stuff. But again, that just kind of adds to how much craziness is going on, not just going through times, but also, being out of phase, but not always out mm. of phase. Sometimes they're seen, sometimes they're not. Yeah. And then there's certain things that happen that like ground them so that they're stuck in a particular time and back in phase. And yeah, there's a lot of really weird stuff that happens. Yeah. And there's <laughs> lots this one... of really weird stuff that happens. That's just the title of the book. <laughs> And there's this part where uh, Odo is fighting with Ducat, and I can't remember who the person was. I guess it was Terrell. And Odo's trying to make sure that this time Terrell doesn't get killed, so keep him away from the spot that he was fine dead. But Odo can't be seen, but o Odo can move like, you know, these crates or something at Ducat and try to prevent something. But this still happens, and Terrell dies in the same location. Was it mm -hmm. Terrell, I think? Is that right? Or? Uh, I think so. It's the Andorian, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the yeah, Andorian. I, yeah. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but yeah, it's, and, and that's what I'm talking about when like, I think if Odo hadn't have been there, he wouldn't have died in that exact same spot. So right. Odo became a part of what was supposed to have happened and supposed and supposed to, again, is just in quote marks there. Cause you know, that I don't know if that it happened before that happened. There were, yeah, people from the future had a part in the past before they were in the future. Right, yeah. It's a predestination paradox, to yes. use the uh, terminology of Star Trek and time travel. But there are a few oddities that we do discover along the way, and there's one in particular that you pointed out here that, like I said, by the time I got to the end of the novel, I was like, yeah. They explained everything and everything works perfectly. That's great. But you actually pointed something out here that you're right, isn't quite right or is unexplained. We're talking about Odo being on Deep Space Nine and one of the time periods he swings forward to is after the station was supposedly destroyed by the Red Wormhole, but it's still there. Uh, it's not destroyed. It's just abandoned and there's nobody aboard. Except or was it destroyed? <laughs> that I'm, I'm still actually not sure about either <laughs> but because it was mentioned because i reread it it was mentioned that it may have been destroyed but what odo is on this abandoned station is actually more of an illusion hmm 
And well, and we kind of come to that determination from this scene that you're about to explain. Okay. Yeah, that maybe explains it a bit better than I was thinking then, because yeah, Odo is walking around on the promenade and there's no one else around except Vic Fontaine appears. And and I don't mean he appears like he he fades in like a hologram. He walks up to Odo because he's been walking around the promenade trying to figure out what's going on as well. Now, how the heck does Vic Fontaine exist outside of the hollow suite? And I never realized it, but the book never explains it. It doesn't really explain it. It tries to a little, but not really very well or not very clear. So what I gather from this is Odo finds uh, Vic walking around the station. Even Vic's like, hey, Stretch, all I know I've been doing is just walking around a shopping mall all day. <laughs> and Odo's like, well, how did you get here? And Vic is like, well, you know, one minute, basically, you know, he's in the hollow suite. And then this door appears with some lights around and he walks through it. And then he's been walking around the station, but no one's around. And Odo's even questioning, well, wait, this, I'm in a period after the station was destroyed. So how can I be on the station? And how can Vic be walking around the station? So, Odo kind of comes to the conclusion that this is an illusion. And I guess where I'm going with this, and it's very confusing, and I hadn't thought that much about it, but I think <laughs> this whole realm that they're in is part real and part illusion. Like reality mm. isn't quite what we think of reality. So there's aspects that are real, but also illusion i mean think about the personal hell the pa race were able to create this personal hell they felt like they were actually there now Oda's on a station that has been destroyed but then he's on it and no one else is there and the reason i say i know the station was destroyed because they saw it crumble down and get destroyed so mm -hmm. i don't know how it could be sitting there perfectly fine and how vic could be walking around it well by the end of the novel like the station tumbles out of the wormhole intact, right? I, I believe like, yeah. So I, my thinking was, and again, this is just kind of me thinking things. I don't know if it, this is any basis like them seeing the station crumble was due to this wormhole opening that the orbs were creating. And we know that the orbs project illusions around them. So I was thinking maybe that was the illusion and the station actually wasn't destroyed. It was just pulled into the wormhole when the wormhole formed around it. Possibly. And, and very well could be. One of the themes I've throughout these books is the notion of time and linear time. And as Cisco has been talking to the prophets at, at periods of time, he keeps explaining what linear time is like I'm doing something right now and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Therefore this is time. He's trying to teach the prophets, the wormhole aliens about what linear time means because they look at it as nonlinear. They just look at it as one whole thing. What there is no before, during and after. And there's some mentions of, time and alternate realities and then there's talk of there is no such thing as alternate realities there isn't really such a thing as different timelines 
And at one point, and I can't remember which character, maybe it was Wayun or Dakot, one of them, were explaining that, you know, it's like a river with all these different branches and the river then comes back together at times and the branches come back with the, with the, the main parts of the river and that there is no different necessary timelines is just these cookie cutter, this timeline and that timeline, but they're all interwoven to each other. So what I'm getting at is within this realm, there's don't think of time as what we know of time in different timelines. It's all kind of converged into one. So even though a station is destroyed, the station is still there Hmm. because I'm not going to say it's from a different timeline, but everything always exists all at one instant, no matter where you think you are in the time, it's all there. Okay. So it's like in it's like in Voyager when Harry Kim died, but they replaced him with the other Harry Kim. It's like it's the same station, more or less. Yes, but in this in this realm, it would be Harry Kim dies, but you don't go another timeline and see another Harry Kim. You just see Harry Kim, even though you just right. saw him die. He's mm. just there. And there's a lot of things I think that are going on that question what reality really is to these people and therefore seeing Vic on the station was Vic really on the station was there really a station there or was this an illusion caused by the prophets or was this a timeline that is for all intents and purposes part of the realm of timeline that owes in at that moment (laughs) I know it's like I should be smoking (laughs) something at this point because I'm just like hey oh man (laughs) I was just about to say, I was reading this the same week that recreational marijuana was legalized here in Canada, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I did not use that fact to its full advantage while reading this, and I feel like that might have helped me if I had. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so this whole scene with Vic Fontaine is very touching like it's a very incredibly touching scene in this novel because uh vic fontaine has been alone on this station there's no one else around and odo isn't sure what's going to become of him when and if they're able to quote unquote fix the timeline or if they'll create a separate timeline and odo thinks that vic might end up being all alone on this station in an alternate timeline forever while everyone else restores or creates a a second timeline uh, apart from this one. And that it was moving. I was actually really sad for Vic and the possibility that that might happen. And if I remember correctly, basically Odo comes to this realization and like seconds before he disappears back to a different time again, like he kind of thinks like, wait a minute, Vic Fontaine might be stuck here forever all alone and flash and he's gone. And it's like, well, if that's the case, he's lost now, you know, there's no, there's no going back for him. And, oh man, that was brutal. I was actually really sad for, for Vic, even though this is all we see of him. I think in this trilogy, we don't get a lot of Vic Fontaine, but just this one little scene was interesting. And I, I kind of am curious what the writer's thought processes were for including that scene, because it's surprisingly moving 
But like on paper, I would think it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with the rest of the story. But I'm really glad they had it in here. Yeah, I don't know if they just felt like they wanted to get Vic Fontaine in here in some capacity. Uh, and then this is kind of a strange way to put Vic Fontaine in at the same time. <laughs> uh, but then maybe as they're going through the storyboard process and they're thinking, okay, now Odo moves forward past, well, into the future past the time that the three orbs were brought together, but he's still in the station. Well, he would be by himself and maybe they're just thought, Oh, what if Vic showed up? Ooh, yeah, let's just do that. But you know, mm. I, I think this was probably one of my most favorite scenes in this book. And that's why I put it in the notes because it's like you said, it's very sad and we know it's sad because Odo feels sad for Vic. And Vic is feeling sad because as Odo's trying to explain to Vic, you know, I'm going to end up going back and we're trying to fix something or change something in the timeline. And Vic is like, well, hey, Stretch, what happens to me? What, you know, once you're gone, what, uh, am I going to remember any of this? Because Odo's saying he's going to change the timeline. So Vic is questioning, well, if you're going to change it, well, I remember this happening because if you change the timeline, this may not happen. And it's like where I was getting back earlier Odo's saying, well, this still might happen and it may not. I don't know. It's like everything's kind of maybe and it happens. Maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe this is here. Maybe it's not here. And mm. Vic said, and even Odo explains, there are many Vicks. There's different timelines, basically. There's many Vicks. And so you will not remember this, but you being here now remember this. And he's like, yeah, but what happens to me? And Odo's like, I, I, you know, I don't know. And you're right. As soon as Oda goes to the different phase, as the wave comes in, he thinks this Nick could be here. This timeline could always be here. And it's just Vic standing here alone on the station with nothing. Yeah. And it's forever. It's sobering. Yeah. It's almost like the personal hells. We're like, we're talking yeah. about miles on the Dyson sphere. It's just like, you know, standing there for a thousand years nothing yeah absolutely it's uh yeah it's, it's a really moving scene and it's kind of sad to think about that you know i i guess they don't end up changing the timeline so i don't think they create a new timeline no they or, don't yeah but there really again isn't really a timeline <laughs> yeah but then if they didn't create a new timeline that happened to Vic and he experienced that. So did the Vic that we know and love experience that? And so is, this is the same Vic or is there a Vic out there on some station or was he on the promenade of the station that tumbled out of the wormhole at the end and everyone goes back aboard and is like, Vic, what are you doing out here? <laughs> like, I, I don't know that that doesn't really get, Hmm. I'm more confused about that. Darn it. <laughs> I don't know. I think I go back to what the idea that at least this scene is some type of illusion then, because yeah. again, I think the hint in that is Vic is able to walk out of a hollow suite. There's no explanation right. why he should be able to do that. There, it, just because the timeline has moved forward in the future doesn't mean Vic can now walk out of a hollow suite. So it must be some illusion or a play from the realm of this inside this wormhole that uh, defines conventional 
logic and things and how things work. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying, man. It's trippy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. Um, we do have another character that we've talked a little bit about. We've talked about her in previous episodes quite a bit as well. And that's the, uh, that's the Bajoran Arla Rees, who is this uh, Bajoran commander, like you said, was not raised on Bajor, doesn't believe in the prophets. And she's got a really interesting arc in this story. So at one point she is infested with the Grigari nanomachines, as they call them in the book, uh, and is committed to fulfilling the desires of the true prophets, who are, of course, the Pa Wraiths. Um, she's basically turned into a villain for part of this book. And at one point, their their end goal is to evacuate both the Defiant and the Boreth and get everybody back to the station and get everything normalized again. And it ends up that Jake and Arla are the last two people on the Defiant. And Arla, of course, is trying to thwart Jake getting back because she wants the universe to end and everything to kind of snap back to the the perfect utopia created by the paw wraiths kind of thing so she's preventing jake from beaming off of the defiant which gives me in this book another of my favorite bits which is jake you know kind of trying to figure out how to get off the defiant and kind of sequestering himself in engineering and talking with dax and cisco back on the station about his fate and we kind of get a bit of a replay of Cisco in the episode The Reckoning, where he has to sacrifice his son in order for the prophets to win. Yeah, they even refer uh, to that at some point. Yeah. So. I really liked that because it felt like uh it felt like a do-over for the reckoning a little bit. Because I did like that episode, but at the same time it does kind of just end the reckoning and it doesn't turn into as big a thing as they thought it would. So it was like that still has to happen. And it kind of, they kind of replay it here a little bit, which I thought was really cool. But Arla, like I said, is, you know, thwarting Jake and trying to stop them from restoring the timeline or changing it from how the paw rates want things to end up. So I, I want to talk a little bit about her arc here and where she ends up at the end of the book, because it's kind of a neat little reveal. And what are your kind of thoughts on this character? When she showed up as being evil at one point, I thought, aha, there you go. I wondered when reading the previous books, if there was something about this character we didn't know and she's up to no good or she's behind what Ducat's doing or what Weyoun's doing or something like that. And then we see her take Wayun's side on this and all of a sudden she's talking about the true prophets and Jake's even like I don't even I thought you didn't even believe in that stuff and then she reveals that well she does and she believes in the true prophets like Wayun and she's like Wayun but he comes to the conclusion that she has these Grigari nano machines as he calls them in her system the nanites and uh, because she was shown as being injured as if Weyun had beat her on the head to escape, but really she was the one who helped him beam over to the station and then she regenerated into perfect health again. But it wasn't as if this character was evil from the very beginning of the book. 
she somehow got infected by these nanites, I guess sometime here in book three. I don't know exactly when it took <laughs> place, but uh, so no, she's not an evil character. She just gets temporarily possessed in this book. And we'll get into it a little later, but the whole Arla and Jake characters in this part of the book and these scenes really work well together because she is this evil presence at this point representing Weyun and the true prophets. But uh, this gives Jake a chance to shine as a hero in this book. Yeah, he gets some very nice moments where, uh, you know, he's decided, of course, not to join Starfleet and he's becoming a writer and that sort of thing. But he did still kind of study under O'Brien in season two of DS9. So he uses some of that engineering knowledge and, you know, he pictures O'Brien in his head and there's, there's three ways to stop a starship from, you know, doing blah, blah, blah. And, and he kind of uses these little engineering tricks and stuff. So it was a really cool way to get Jake kind of out of his element and doing something new and exciting. Uh, you know, in ways I think the series didn't do all that often. I always thought the series kind of did a bit of a disservice to Jake's character from time to time. So it was nice that he got a big part in this in this trilogy here. So that was really cool. Yeah, and I was very impressed that he knew all these this he had this engineering knowledge and he was doing what he was doing because you're looking at him thinking, wow, he really would make a great Starfleet officer. He's already there. Yeah, totally. Uh you know, he could uh be the chief writing officer i don't know <laughs> but something like that yeah no he's got that basic knowledge and he couldn't have asked for a better teacher of course and o'brien for sure so then i want to go back to arla and this is now jumping also to the end of the book which we'll get to hear more in a moment but what i really loved about the arla character in this book is go back to what i said at the beginning of the episode her personal hell in that personal hell she's witnessing you know war and bajor and the cardassians are there and she's fearing for her life and kayapaka shows up and she seems to confess to kayapaka that she's almost now needs religion she she kind of believes in the prophets there's something about this experience it's now she's having faith in this Bajoran religion that she didn't grow up with, but that was in her personal hell. So at some points I thought, okay, well maybe she's starting to believe in the Bajoran religion. Now that she's out of the personal hell, maybe she carried that with her afterwards, maybe not. But then when we see her possessed and she's talking about the true prophets, it's like, okay, well now she's believing in these, but it's not really her. It's the nanites that are in her. But now we fast forward to the end of the book and we find her in this religious setting on Bajor and Kira and Cisco are there and they're talking to her and she confesses that she feels like this is something that's always been calling to her, this religion, but she never knew it until now. So she made this leap from being a non-believer to a believer in the Bajoran religion. And I really liked that aspect of her character. It really was a chance to see this character go from, uh, one end to another a complete 180 yeah it's a really nice arc really interesting and it's something that like halfway through this book i was a little concerned about what they were doing with her character i wasn't sure where things were going so that kind of reveal at the end that she's in this religious setting which we'll talk about in a second here was a really nice surprise it was a really cool reveal um and and one that 
I didn't really see coming. I, I kind of figured it out maybe a sentence before it was revealed. I was like, oh, I bet you it's, oh yeah, sure enough, it's Arla. That's cool. You know, it was it was unexpected enough that it was just a really cool reveal. You know, there's all these little hints to time and I'm at the last page of the last chapter where Kira and Arla are talking to each other, which is page 404. And Arla says to Kira, it's all... It always has been. This is when Kira's asking her about uh, believing in the Bajoran face and faith, and is this the right right place for you? And she says it's always has been. I just didn't know it until well, just until. Now, notice she didn't say until this period of time or this moment. It's just well, until. It's like time is something that is very vague, and it's that whole non-linear play. And then she quotes a poem, and she says, "I know why the prophets weep." And Kira then continues the poem and says, for joy. And Arla says, in time, in time. Once mm. again, we talk about time to the point where when Kira and Cisco go to leave, Kira says, time to go home. And Cisco says, we already are. <laughs> so I just love how there's all this little aspects of time and it's, it is what it is, but it isn't what we think it is. Yeah. yeah. And then kind of bringing in the whole motto, basically, of the prophets that we learn in the very first episode of Deep Space Nine. It's not linear. Right. You know, and I, I didn't think of that line in the context of that when Kira says time to go home and Cisco says we already are. I was thinking like it's Bajor. Bajor is home. But no, that's not what he meant. Like everything is all at the same time. That's not even the right phrase, but like, you know, it's not linear. They are home. They're also on Bajor. They're also, Cisco's also on the Saratoga with his wife. You know, it's just, it's all of time, all of existence. It's just existence. It's not linear. Yeah. It's almost, I love that. It's like thinking when we say time lines, picture a line that's how we think of time it's you know linear it's this thing we move through it's almost like the prophets look at time it's just a dot it's just a thing yeah it's just it's, it's just existence it's just it's, existence right and that goes back to what you were talking about in the story of how things happened in the past from these characters in the future but it must have always happened it's that paradox thing it's you know and it's hard to explain well how did those things happen from people in the future, if they weren't there yet, like how would the timeline work that you're, it's almost like, you know, like Jane, if Jane, we were here right now, she'd say, I try not to think about it. It just is. <laughs> you know, Cause my head will explode. Totally. Well, the last thing we should definitely talk about is Cisco's role as the emissary in these books. And there's some really cool moments that basically this book to me like the story is really interesting and, and you can follow it and go through, but it's also a collection of really cool moments that just kind of resonate and have, have meaning for deep space nine and that sort of thing. We have the Prylar Rulon who the guy, if you remember emissary first greeted Cisco and called him the emissary and said, the prophets await you, you know, and gestured into the Bajoran shrine and, Cisco says, another time, perhaps. And he says, another time, and walks away. We learn in this that moments before that, he met 
Cisco from the future and recognized him as the emissary and, you know, then saw the younger version of him and it was like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, there he is. Okay. That makes, it makes sense because, you know, these guys, they're just, they're just so good with time and profits and they, they just know their stuff. Right. I just love that moment. It's just such a cool moment. And by the end of the book, Cisco and Kira, they bring these red orbs to the Siren Mountains on Bajor, where this sect of the Bajoran religion that, you know, kind of safeguards the prophecies led by Prylor Obanak, um, they have kind of guarded the red orbs of Jalbador. And it's kind of implied that they put them where they needed to be to fulfill this prophecy and make everything turn out the way it did. And now, okay, that's done with Cisco and Kira bringing them back now. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of this really cool thing because they have these prophecies that tell everything that happened and even identified the emissary as the Cisco, but couldn't release that information. Cause then of course you'd get thousands of people saying, Oh, my name's Cisco. My parents named me Cisco. I must be the 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 emissary, right? right? Which makes sense. I was like, oh yeah. You know, if they knew it was going to be the Cisco, why wouldn't they just tell everybody? Well, that's why. And that I was like, that's brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. But there's also a bit of I don't want to say confusion. There's a little bit of kind of fluidity to who exactly maybe the prophet. And there's a couple little allusions to this where they say like, you know, the emissary is the Cisco. You are the Cisco, but you're not the emissary. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, there's Jake. Jake can't be the emissary. Maybe someone else is the emissary. And then he, there's a, like a line where he says, I might have to have talk with Cassidy about this kind of implying that maybe a child that they have in the future might actually be the emissary. And I was like, that's cool because these books, of course, were written after the series was over, but they take place before we find out that Cassidy is pregnant in the final episodes of Deep Space Nine. So there's kind of they're playing a little bit fast and loose here, saying the emissary is the Cisco, but Benjamin Cisco might not actually be the emissary, which I thought was interesting. Okay, so I said earlier about uh, <laughs> about uh, the. Vic Fontaine scene being my favorite. This may be my favorite one, but more so than that one, this very ending. <laughs> There's so many reasons for just what you were just saying. Um, first of all, Rulan, Prila Rulan recognizing Cisco or seeing the future Cisco right before he sees Cisco for the first time on the station in the pilot episode you were just mentioned. I mean, how cool is that, that now when you watch Emissary and you watch the episode and you see Rulan come up to Cisco, you know, he just saw Cisco from six years ago. The Cisco from That's the- so cool. You know, like <laughs> they're in the temple or whatever. It's, it's like with Kira. By the way, you know. Mm. Oh, and by the way, just real quick, there's a funny scene too where Kira comes up to, and I'm trying to remember who it was, but um, I think it was O'Brien or so. I I can't remember, but it was one of these things where you know they beamed over the station, and one character runs the other. Kira runs it, and she's and and this character thinks she's the Kira of the past, and because she, she's pretending that way to get rid of these officers. And as soon as they leave, she goes, "No, I'm the Kira from the future. I'm I'm just pretending I'm the one for the past." But you know what? I really was a bitch back then, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> oh, that was so great. Uh, but anyway, uh, going back to this again, um, and the whole idea of, you know, it's like these, these Prylars placed the orbs because they knew this was supposed to happen. So everything we just read, the Prylars knew were supposed to happen and they set it up. So it's like, as our crew is going around thinking they're trying to fix the timeline or fix these orbs from getting together, they're the chess players moving the pieces around. But at the same time, they themselves are the pieces that the Prylars are moving around. So there's two games of chess. There's the chess being played by the chess, <laughs> you know, and and they know this from a prophecy. They know from the prophecy that these things are supposed to happen. They know who the Cisco is the emissary. And how would the prophecy know this unless it's somehow from the prophets or from these wormhole aliens that see time is not being linear, but just being this one thing. And there is no one way forward. It's almost like everything is intertwined into one there's not a forward backwards it's just one so the prophecy knows what happens because it always has happened yeah (laughs) (laughs) sure that makes sense i think i i must be in canada now because that stuff is like (laughs) legal and i must be doing it right now because but you know and then the other thing i want to point out is that cisco well doesn't say which Cisco is the true emissary. Do we really even know who the emissary is? Is it Ben Cisco or another Cisco? They don't question that it's Jake, but it's like you said, maybe there's this other baby coming, which I think is really awesome because all these years later, this book came out in 2000. All these years later, we just had a book earlier last year, I think it was, by David R. George III called Original Sin, a Deep Space Nine novel. And it's playing on the idea at Cisco's daughter, there's something special about her. She has certain powers. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I was thinking the same thing reading this. Absolutely. I mean, we're like you know, 17 years later, and I, I need to ask David R. George III if that is where he got the idea if that's where the plans were leading all this time in the deep space nine relaunch novels is to get to Cisco's daughters being something special. Yeah. Ah, oh, that would be really cool if this was all just a really big, long game to bring us to that point. That's really cool. <laughs> I know it just blows your mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think at this point, we should probably say, uh, do you have final thoughts that you want to say about Inferno as well as maybe a final rating for the novel? I do have final thoughts. They've always existed. They didn't come to me after reading the novels. They've always been there. My feelings have always existed about these novels, (laughs) even before they were written, if there was a before, because the books were always written. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. Time is not linear. (laughs) So I obviously love these books. I would say that when I got to the third book, I didn't like it as much as the first two. I did Mm. on Goodreads give it five stars like I did the previous two. But as I mentioned to someone on Twitter when they commented, wow, five stars. I said, well, maybe more like 4.7, but I'm willing to bump that up a little higher, maybe to (laughs) 4.8 because after talking (laughs) about it, I just realized how excited I am about these books and how much I enjoy them. But my only criticism about it would be 
that it does get a little confusing and overwhelming at times. And sometimes I don't like that. Sometimes I feel like, okay, if it's this confusing, there must be holes in this that are, that we're just missing parts. And there's probably little plot holes here and there that I'm not even recognizing just because it's confusing. But as we're talking through it, I don't think there's quite as many holes in it as there probably are um, or could be. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's just, it's really, I don't want to say it's odd. I don't want to say it's a weird novel. It's just, it really makes your head explode when it comes to the whole idea of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, this time, I will give this book 100% a thousand years, not trapped in hell, but in heaven. Wow. All right. So wait, a thousand years in heaven. Is that like, is that like a game that adolescent prophets play where they go in with another prophet into the closet, but it's for like a thousand years because they have no concept of linear time. I don't know. Maybe because it's already (laughs) happened. (laughs) awesome i love it well yeah i i really enjoyed this series i'm really glad that you put it on the schedule and and made us read these because they were a really interesting trilogy and there's probably a million things that i missed reading this and it would be a really good thing to go back and reread at some point i'm probably not within the next year but at some point it would be nice to kind of revisit these because like I say, there's so much here that, you know, there's so much that I probably missed, but I really did enjoy it. The The confusion did kind of detract from it a little bit. It's really ambitious. They really tackled a lot with this book and I'm impressed just on that basis, you know, that they managed to do something so audacious and create the story and, it holds together amazingly enough. So um, I wouldn't quite give it a hundred percent for me just because the confusion kind of, I, I don't, I don't want to use the word chore. It wasn't a chore to read this, but there was a couple times that I was like, okay, I need to, I need to read this and wrap my head around it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of times we think of literature and, and stuff as too much of escapism this book really needed you to engage your brain and think while you read, which made it a little harder than usual. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing, but I'm going to give this four Garricks all talking to each other because, you know, somebody was looking at the two Garricks and, and they got confused and went a little cross-eyed. So now there's four Garricks talking to each other, which is pretty awesome. That's that that can be overwhelming if you have that many Garricks in a room together. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine so. <laughs> but yeah, overall, uh the series I feel the same way as I've given the books of full, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm I it's actually something I do want to go back and read yet again. Okay, now that I can turn my brain off now and just relax. Now I can go to bed tonight and get a good night's sleep without my brain trying to figure out all these things. Because I think we've talked through a good many things in this book that it helps when 
we're actually talking through it. And hopefully other people who've read this book recently listening to this, we help clarify some things. Maybe we even confused (laughs) things more and maybe we're so way off to the point that I would love to hear what other people think. You know, I would love to maybe got a different perspective of things. Maybe I'm so way off. Maybe I'm right on when things I've said and, and maybe Dan's right on and right off what we'd love to hear. it. So let us know in the Babel conference, uh, because it would be, or even send us an email because it'd be great to hear. Yeah. And I mean, this is maybe something that I personally would love to revisit. So I, I, if some of you want to leave some comments in the Babel conference on the post for this episode, maybe we can set aside a few minutes at the start of the next episode to talk a little bit about your guys' theories and whether you agree with us or what you think about this book. So you know, in order for us to do that, though, we need comments from you. So if you have some thoughts on this, get yourself to the Babel conference and comment on the post for this episode. We really, I think more than any other book we've done, I really want to hear what our listeners have to say about it. Yeah. And if for some of you they are like, wait, what's the Babel conference? We're going to tell you here shortly. So stick around. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been fun talking about linear time and lack thereof today. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network, so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, continuing mission. You know, another production. And now another fourth, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> but now they are. And that in itself seems to me to be laying the the roots or the basis for something that could grow bigger sometime in the future. I mean, let's get this one out of the way and then see where it goes from there. But but now you have a collective. Earl Grey. <laughs> Detecting Romulan life forms. Oh, sorry. Did you say there are Romulan life forms? Yeah. No, I said there was there 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 used to be. So used you, to be you, you detect fate signs. What have you guys created? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So there are life forms. Interesting, fascinating. I was, 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 was life forms. They're gone now, but there was traces of life forms that were present at the um, at the shuttlecraft. Oh my goodness! Dead Starfleet officers, dead Romulans. This isn't really helping much, is it? <laughs> Standard orbit. This episode is emblematic of how it wanted to grab the bull by the proverbial horns and and wrestle those kinds of issues to the ground and serve as an example of uh, of where a certain subset of people stood at the time in trying to react to the craziness of their own world and and that's that's one of the things that I just continuously love about this show the 602 club and, and that's the thing I, I think you need a movie like this because most of the time when we think about astronauts and the, the these heroes who do these extraordinary things um, we're painting with a very broad brush. Um, e- even in the right stuff, which, uh, l- like I said, it at least gives you some differences in the personalities of those guys. This is like, you know, the, this masterclass in the in this psychology of this one particular person. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. We've got podcasts for whatever you like in Star Trek. If there's something specific you like, I guarantee you'll find an episode or a series all about that. And you can find those wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, which you've already done in time at some point. You have always hit the button. But if you subscribe to us, you'll get us on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app. All those episodes will be there as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review, which we're going to read one here shortly. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network over on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, and that's spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, a bunch of which we've put out lately, so take a look for that, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, like Bruce mentioned, we do have a, a five-star rating from iTunes. Uh, this is from the iTunes UK store, so this is really cool to see here. And this message comes from... D-Y-R-M-S-86, Derms86, I'm going to guess. And uh, yeah, so he writes, Firstly, I love this podcast. It covers something I really love in an entertaining and informative way. I only found it a few months ago, but have binge listened to every podcast up to and including the latest, featuring Phil Farrand, the author of The Nitpicker's Guides. You're a little behind on catching this review, sorry about that. I have them all, including the X-Files one. Unfortunately for me, he was a less-than-ideal guest. There were long passages concerning the publishing process, during which he lengthily named-checked numerous people we don't know and never will, squeezing out time he could have devoted to talking about the guides and the process of compiling them. This was, after all, what most of us listened for. Indeed, he repeatedly told you it was all a long time ago, and uncomfortably laughed out loud at his own comments and stories. I don't know if your silence at these moments was due to the technology involved or having nothing to add. I genuinely see this as a bump in the road, and you haven't lost a listener. You have always requested honest feedback, and hope you take it as such. Five stars, because you deserve it. Well, thank you for that review. I love the title of the review. The review. It says, I had to pick this week to review, didn't I? So in other <laughs> words, this reviewer, he or she, felt that uh, every episode's good, but by the time that uh, this person is ready to write the review. Weren't a big fan of this episode with Phil Fran about the nitpickers guide. I think uh, in defense of Phil, I think again, as you said in the quote uh, being a long time ago, I think he remembers the process of getting ready to write it, but not all the details of the book to really talk so much about what he was nitpicking on. Uh I know sometimes there have been authors who've said, oh, I wouldn't mind coming on talking about the book I wrote, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but I don't know if I remember all the details. 
So, uh, but no, this is actually good feedback and something we'll consider on, uh, if we do future interviews like this. And, uh, so we appreciate the five-star review in the comments. Yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned in your review, we do request honest feedback and we do really appreciate it. So, uh, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for enjoying the show. And, uh, you know, I, I think not every episode is going to be for everyone. Uh, Phil Farrand for me is someone whose books I've followed since I was a little kid. And I was absolutely thrilled to get that interview. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not always going to be everyone's cup of tea. And like Bruce said, these books were written a long time ago. And I think there's certain parts of probably the business side of it that he would remember more that probably has less bearing to us as the readers than it would have to him. So, so I certainly enjoyed the interview and uh, I hope a lot of other people did as well. And always know that if something isn't quite what you're expecting on the show, hopefully we'll have something the next week that you'll love all the more for it. I don't know what I expect on this show. So it just happens. That's all that <laughs> happens now. But hey, you know, we mentioned earlier about the Babel Conference. And so if you're not familiar with that, this is the point where we're going to tell you. So it's our listeners group on Facebook and you can find it by going into Facebook and searching for the Babel conference. And all you got to do is type, type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And that's where you can make comments on the show and other past episodes and all kinds of stuff on Trek FM. But if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too. There's a form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks and it will come right to us. And of course, you can also contact us and follow the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And by the way, we're also on Instagram. You can find us there too as trek.fm. Perfect. Well, you can also find us on our Goodreads group, and there we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. You can get caught up on books that maybe you haven't read for past episodes, and get ahead of us to read ahead for shows that are coming up. And of course, there are also great conversations happening about all of the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads.com and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not swinging back and forth through time on a pendulum, trying to set right what once went wrong, hoping that your next leap will be the leap home, where can we find you? Welcome to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm just one of your hosts, Bruce. Oh, I'm sorry. I just like swung back to the beginning of the show or actually last (laughs) week's show. And now I'm just swung back here to the end of this episode. Okay. So you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline then Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. That's a Star Wars podcast out there. So search for that. And uh, you can find me around the Trek FM network. I've recently been on Warp 5. I think I'm going to be on an Earl Grey episode soon. Uh, yeah, I try to, you know, 6 of 2 Club, all that stuff. I try to get around lately. So we'll see. But uh, you can also find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook. 
So Dan, when you're not wandering around Deep Space Nine by yourself because you're the only one there and you're somewhere in the future and the station's abandoned and this is your personal hell for the next thousand years, where can people find you? This place is crazy. I can't even find the door to the parking lot. I don't know what's going on here. That's my best Vic Von Painting impression. I don't know how That's good That's right. That you said about the parking lot in the book. I love it. <laughs> Well, when I'm not aimlessly wandering the promenade, wondering where the valet left my car outside, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek. And you can find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook and also on Facebook.com slash Productions, Instagram.com slash 47 and probably lots of other ways that I haven't even thought of now. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.